What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing over there? Well, you know, it's a brave new world, apparently. So there's plenty of indoor activities for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I'm just busy at my home right now, Skyping you in between my uh, online lessons with people. Yeah, that's good. I've seen that you've started to change your platform a little bit because we can't go off and do our overseas seminars or local seminars or even catch up with friends and colleagues in the park. We can actually change that to online. So there's plenty of uh, dog training opportunities for people. They can get in touch with us online. But you know what else they should do in this time of uh, difficulty and isolation? What's that? Stockpile dog training equipment. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, if they're in Australia, they can get that equipment from Ironswick Dog Quip. And if they're in North America, they could get it from Canine Dynamics. What about if they need some tasty treats for their dogs? Well, if they need tasty treats for their dogs, the best place to get that is from Bright's Bites. So they can visit our friend Mark LaPointe, the Ferminator up in Queensland, and Kylie, who's in Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah. May as well stockpile dog equipment while you're stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so before we wind this ridiculous ad up, tell our people how they can find you if they're looking for you for online consultations. Yeah, you can go to my website. It's operantcanine.com.au. There's a training tab and there's the book a session. You can do that there. I'm doing them over Zoom now. It's really cool. We can share screens and we can talk and mm. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, How about perfect. you? Are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing a few consults. I've started doing a few. I've been approached to do a few more. So people can either contact me directly and we can set something up or they can contact my team. I've got Kana and Twisty and Tegan from Canine Evolution. They're doing online consults. And while you're still allowed to, they're doing the social distancing of one-on-one consults if people are are well and they're presenting okay. So they're going through all the correct procedures with that and we're still doing all our daycare at Pet Resorts Australia. Perfect. Yeah, there's plenty of options for people in a crisis. There's plenty of people around the world offering great services and great techniques. So take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, get on it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And all the way from Brooklyn, New York, is Mr. Jason Cohen. Hey, Jason. How you doing, guys? Good, buddy. Thanks for Good joining us on you. the show. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Hey, mate. So we've been meaning to get you on for a long time. A long time. You're in lockdown there, right? There's not too much going on. <laughs> yes. Suddenly, you've got a lot of time for us. Yeah, they're calling it a pause. A pause, yeah. We're pausing everything, pausing life. Pausing business, but yeah. Well, that's, we've got to do what we got to do. But hey, I'm pretty keen, mate. We've known each other a few years now through the ISCP mm-hmm. and you're doing a bang up job now on the board there, doing an awesome job. And, Very good um, job. You know, changing some of the things that have maybe gotten stagnant. But what I'm keen to talk to you about is let's go back to the start. Let's get the origin story and how on earth did you end up as a dog trainer? Oh, that's a long road. Seemed like I was destined for it, but it uh, took many channels and turns. So many, many moons ago, when I was about nine years old, 
I lived in Israel. We moved to Israel, and we were in this um, sort of absorption center when you first go and move to Israel. And I just had a connection with dogs back then. I almost had a stray of dogs following me. I did feed them, so that helped. <laughs> um, and it really got me into dogs, you know, food. And then I had a few dogs growing up and just always had a connection. But after coming back to the States and going through different things, things in life, um, I followed my art background after I was in the military. So I went to the U.S. military, did that for a few years. Nothing as hardcore as, uh, as you, Pat. I had no idea you were in the military. What did, what did you do? Yeah, I was 25th Infantry Light, so uh, cool. urban and jungle warfare. Nice. Stationed in Hawaii. Nice. I only did three. I was going to get out. I was thought about going to ranger school, but it wasn't in the plans. I enjoyed it to what you can enjoy that experience, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Living in Hawaii was a lot of fun. I ended up having an apartment off base because the base was overcrowded. So I got to live in uh, North Shore nice. as a 19 to 22 year old uh, kid. So that was a lot of fun. A lot of stories there. Yeah, I'll but, bet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably not suitable for, for this podcast. No, not many. Some are, but not many. Yeah, I came back, uh, left the military a little early. And um, actually, I was supposed to go to Australia as one of our tours when I was in the military. Uh-huh. But uh, budget cuts uh, during the Clinton administration cut those off. Yeah, right. So missed out my opportunity. I think he was uh, um, lacking cigars back then. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, definitely. So then uh, left and went to the art school and did that for about 20 years. So I was an art director in the world of advertising, doing all kinds of uh, anything from direct marketing to web to any way of um, approaching and selling people things through um, internet, promotions, everything you can think of a Fortune 500 companies. Five years towards the end, I really got back into my relationship with dogs. I adopted a dog. Uh, that was Cheddar. So my logo that everybody sees, uh, that's his head that I put in there. That was mm-hmm. my heart dog, Cheddar. He was, uh, as we all have, or a lot of us have, a problem child. He had uh, mostly some leash reactivity. Um, I made a lot of mistakes like many do. Worked with a bunch of different trainers from different styles. and uh, But really got into it. Um, enjoyed trying to help him. I even did something with him that later I realized what I did that impressed the trainer that um, was teaching me. After he reacted to a dog, I had him just by patting on the floor, calmly lay on the side as other dogs were going by. And my trainer at the time was like, how'd you do that? I'm like, I don't know. It's, you know, we learned later how, why it was. Mm -hmm. So it just got me really into trying to help him that after he passed, he died. He had um, renal carcinoma cancer. So it hit him twice in the lungs and the, kidneys. I moved to Brooklyn. I adopted my dog Karma and started volunteering and helping badass Brooklyn Animal Rescue. Okay. So they're a great organization that brings dogs from down south. And as I was seeing all these dogs getting returned for nothing that's really that hard, really, if they had the right direction or the right start, it would help them. So I got involved, got more into training with helping my dogs, volunteering, taking some of the difficult fosters and, and helping out. And uh, I was thinking, okay, I want to get out of this. I looked into many things for about five years. And then I got laid off as they do in advertising. They say, okay, you're making too much money. Great, you're, you're gone. So after seven years, 
working at a, uh, one of the bigger agencies, I get laid off, but I already had a trip planned to Costa Rica with my buddies. Okay. So, well, I'm going to still do that. So yeah. while we're on a mountain in Costa Rica, little nothing type of hotel, beautiful, having a few drinks in, hanging out. They're like, Jason, when are you going to do your thing? When are you going to follow your passion? And as my mom's told me, my mom, my mom's told me many years ago, life's going to give you a tap, a push, and maybe that a punch to push you in the right direction where you should be going. Mm -hmm. And I think me getting laid off after all that time, having that luxury of a severance pay and the push of my friends to say, okay, you should do this now. So after I got back from vacation, looked into how I can enter the dog training world and I ended up uh, deciding to uh, go to Starmark Academy in Texas. Cool. Hey, let me okay. wind back just yeah. a little bit. And you said with that first sure, dog man. cheddar, you had some like mixed advice, right? So I'm curious, yours is kind of the dog trainer's fairy tale, right? Like I would say 90% of people, this is how they get into dog training mm. is they, yeah. they adopt yeah. a dog or they buy a dog or whatever. And they have behavioral issues with that dog and develop a, in the fixing of that, develop a passion for it. And I think yeah. sometimes certainly this was the case that I was in and you know there's so many others fit into that is maybe they've employed a dog trainer that the advice that they gave with you just didn't sit well you know like when they say do this and and I think that it's interesting to me and I'm curious to you which end of the spectrum was it on because for me it was like I was myself at that time trying to be a force-free dog trainer and got more advice that was force-free and I was like hey I'm already doing that so like this can't that ain't gonna work because I've been doing that for two weeks but then I know there's also people who are like use all this pressure and all this compulsion and the yank and crank trainer comes around and you're like, that doesn't sit with me. I don't want to do that. I know my dog. I don't think that's going to work. So what was the story with you as much as you're willing to talk about? Well, I'm willing to talk about it. I just don't want to, uh, the name names, name names or push, push it, you know, but the first thing that I realized is where I was getting my information. I did work with a few different trainers throughout different times But at the time, I was also going to the Tompkins Square Dog Park in the East Village. That's where I was living then, which is a larger dog park well, for the city, but a larger dog park. And looking back on it, one of the most aggressive dog parks I've been around because of the size and what's going on. So I made a lot of those mistakes listening to people tell me, oh, do this. Oh, use this. Oh, try that. And I think that's also what's going on with a lot of people. You get information from the web, from your neighbor, from your friend, Mm -hmm. from the neighborhood guy who helps everybody out, from the dog walker that says he can help you with training. So, From your mom who tries to tell you what a supernova is. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Glenn's mom. (laughs) It's all good. I luckily had a good friend of mine. His name is Garrett Russell. He's a friend of mine then, still now. He helps run that park, but he also is a trainer and a walker and he gave me some good advice and then I worked with a few different trainers one was a style I don't want to name it but a certain style I didn't agree on I tried it I just saw no results and it wasn't positive it wasn't balanced it was more pushing the dog for food but it just wasn't a didn't see any benefit in that and the other other one was another trainer He's, he's, he's great he's actually not training right now and I think what happened is that person gave me the where to go. And then I just took it to a place where I figured things out, understanding more the science. Cause that was great about that trainer is he actually set up the first lesson with the, not just the how, but the why. Yep. And that really helped give me the path because as we know, you can't always say, 
do A, B, C, and D, and you're done. It's it, it's a science, but it's also an art. Yeah, it's funny so you say that, where, mate, because yeah. I think sometimes as dog trainers now you hear people say, oh, you know, don't use the term operant conditioning or classical conditioning with your clients. They don't want to hear that shit. They just want the fix. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's actually not correct at all. And that's exactly what you're saying there is when some people, you know, it's different people's brain works in different ways, Mm. but when for some people they need to know the whole process and understand that and then go, okay, I'm willing to comply with that a hundred percent because I understand it. And when you walk out the door, I'm going to jump onto Google and I'm going to make sure that you're not full of shit. And I'm going to, I'm going to Google all the, (laughs) all the terms. Like I've had people do that to me for sure. They write the the key things down the Mm. Google and you know, for sure they're writing down the Googleable terms and they're going to check on what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And then those people that do that in my experience are usually I have the best compliance with they're the ones mm-hmm. that really commit to it because they go okay this guy like has a real plan this is not he's not talking about the aura of the dog and the ethereal magic <laughs> you know what I mean like this is really replicatable and this is something that I'm going to follow through with so it's interesting you say that yeah but you've also in touching on that you've also got to know Again, it's the Socrates quote of know thyself. You've got to know thy person as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for some you know, people it's no point. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you can see five minutes into the conversation, if they're taking part of the conversation, then you know, yeah, I'm not talking above them. And that's not disrespecting people. I mean, I think it's sometimes it's disrespectful for people to talk above them and continue to do so when you really, like if you yeah. realise they can't follow along and you're still talking over the top of them, and just borrowing down on science on top of them, you know for argument's sake that when you're looking at the struggle in their eyes, they're not enjoying what they're going through. It's a Mm -hmm. little intimidating for them. So with that type of person, I would say scale it back. But for somebody who's enjoying the conversation, hell yeah, go for it. Give them every bit of science that you actually and factually know, and hopefully it'll encourage them to learn. And sometimes, which has been the case with myself and fellow trainers, is they've pushed you to learn a little bit more as well because they'll come back yeah. and ask you some really well thought out and intelligent questions. You think, my God, that came from a place I didn't expect. Now that's pushed me mm-hmm. to, to lift my ceiling as well and I need to get better on my information. So I agree. Yeah, it's that division of science and fact. Like science is knowing how to do it. Yep. Uh, science and art, sorry. Like the science is knowing how to do it and the art is knowing how to explain it. Yep. Like what's yeah, the correct one with this one? And sometimes, you know, I'll even give a different answer to the same question. Like Mm -hmm. with some people, they say, you see training and they go, oh, hang on. This is just like kids. And I'll say, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's exactly like your kids. If you, you get what you reinforce. Right. And then with some other people, they'll go, I'm training my dog just like my kid. And you go, hang on. He's not a kid. Yeah. He's a dog. Right. So it's the same question, but it gets a different answer depending on how it's it's in the context. Right. Mm. Because in one case, they'll understand that that it is a behavior complexity that's in line with training children. But on the other hand, as you said, they'll anthropomorphize it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Good point. I like it. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, uh, one thing, sorry, before we kick yeah. off with you again, one thing that I was impressed about when you were talking before is that your family got behind you and encouraged you in your dog training career. Because, um, I mean, my mum was quite supportive of it, but my grandmother thought I was going to be a gypsy or a carny when she found out I was going to be a dog trainer. She was absolutely mortified. She thought that was so beneath me to be a part of the dog training fraternity that she was. She almost wanted to throw me out of the family. She was so upset about it. So I, I think it's great when families get behind people. And now it's not so hard because dog training is mm-hmm. not frowned on it's like mainstream. it was. Yeah, it's mainstream. It's mainstream. There's more courses. It is a career path that you can get in straight out of school now. But 30 years ago, it was like a dog trainer. What are you going to do being a dog trainer? 
it was very hard for her to comprehend. So, yeah, I really enjoy it when I hear people's families are getting behind it. Yeah, my families and, and, and really my friends too, but it's also I didn't get into it until my 40s. So it was later in life and I was been talking about it for so long and, and them seeing the passion. And I agree nowadays it's easier to get into the industry and it's more accepted. But the other thing was my friends, a lot of them were like, Oh, you could just go be a trainer. You, you know what you're doing. You've mm-hmm. trained cheddar. You've been the dog guy with people for years. I go, yeah, well, I think I need to learn a little more. And looking back on it, going to star Mark gave me, and that's what I tell people when they looking to get into dog training for me, I learned best hands-on. So going to star Mark, that's what it is. There is book smarts and books and you have to take tests, but a lot of it is hands-on hands-on learning and a lot of work, long days and not everybody passes. They do fail people. And to me, that gave me a really good foundation and confidence to move forward with what I wanted to do. I also feel being older, getting into it, life experience also helped me with making some of the decisions and a little bit, I feel, or more helping my clients believe me. If I'm mm-hmm. a 22-year-old kid, mm, I don't know about you. You know, I'm, I'm now I'm pushing 50. I'll be 50 this year. So it's, uh, it's a little different. Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting how people can enter the industry, you know, come in knowing a lot about dogs and have to learn about business, or there's some people that come in knowing a lot about business Mm. and then have to learn about dogs and and life experience just in how to deal with clients and customers and that sort of stuff. You know, you would have had, you would have had thousands of clients, you know, in a totally different sphere in the advertising world, but Mm -hmm. you're dealing with people all the time. You would have had to bid for contracts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. So you know how to talk to people. Whereas I think I certainly have experienced that with people who are, you know, awesome on the tools, like really great at training a dog, but talk to people like they're like it's their first time. You know? <laughs> and usually that's just an age and experience sort of thing. If mm. you've never had to talk to people in a particular way to gain their trust before they'll hand over what's essentially a family member to them, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. a, yeah, you, you're like a, in that way, you're like a boarding school teacher. When you do take a, a dog into the family, you, that is, that's someone's loved treasure that they're paying you to and, and entrusting you with. And you might 100%. be, you might actually be the best in the world at doing that. But if you can't convince them of that, then mm. there's no point, right? Yeah. Hey, Jason, tell us a little bit your time at Starmark, because there's a few people that we've known and met at conference that have yeah. been part of the Starmark family. So I guess in some ways it's similar to NDTF, right? In the core structure, it does sound a lot more similar because it is a balanced and you learn a lot of different aspects of training. So for what it is right now, what I went to, there's a four, eight and 12 week course. I took the 12 week course and you have foundation training, of course, all the foundation that we talked about. There's more practical. We get into some behavior issues and then you touch on different aspects. You get a little bit on bite work, a little bit on service dogs tricks and different aspects of training. So then that's why I keep calling Starmark a foundation. Mm-hmm. Even though you leave there and you're, you know, a trainer, it's just a foundation to then lead you. Okay. Maybe I want to go this direction or that direction. I was the first class after the main two instructors left Rob and Jesse. That's a whole nother conversation about that. But my new instructors that were there were great. I was their first class and learned a lot. It really, what I've seen from since then, other schools, online schools versus in person, the ones that I know in person without naming, some of them I find they're not as 
open in the wide range of things you learn. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do markers. They're not going to do clickers. It's just going to be, um, I guess, more pressure, um, or old school, as some people call it. And then other schools are more geared sport, 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 and that's great. One of the other schools I was looking to go into, and sometimes I'm like, did I make the right choice, was Michael Ellis' school. That was where I was going, Starmark or Michael Ellis. Mm-hmm. But at the time I was going, I couldn't get a loan out that would cover. Um, it wasn't accredited at that point, and mm-hmm. there was no housing. Starmark, there was housing. You live right there. Everything worked out great. So, But people kept telling me, well, Michael Ellis is more sport-driven. But the more I learn about training, all that knowledge could definitely have been applied yeah, it's the same stuff. to behavior stuff, which – you know, so doesn't mean I'm still not going to go learn from Michael Ellis, but those were the path. Something that I've noticed in the States compared to what I see in Australia is uh, a lot of the courses there are a little bit more like method rather than technique. So when you go to someone's school, it's like, this is how we train dogs. Day one is this and day 45, six weeks later is this trained dog. Yep. And every dog goes through this pattern. And that's not to say that's everywhere, but I think that's what mm-hmm. I see quite a bit of. Like, and it's like, this is, I'm the guy, my name is on the school and this is how I train dogs. And largely it works. And, you know, if you're consistent enough, mm-hmm. dogs tend to figure things out. But there are dogs that kind of slip through the cracks on that. And there's dogs that maybe um, had such a, uh, not such a pleasant experience. And, and I'm talking at both ends of the, the spectrum there. There's the overly yeah. compulsive ones and then the, the force free ones. And you know, they, they both are capable of putting out dogs that are untrained in that system. Mm. And I think that that can be a little bit dangerous for people entering yeah. the industry, like going to those schools, you can learn heaps and you can get heaps of great techniques, but if they're a cookie cutter place, yeah. then it can be like, well, that's how it is. And everything else is wrong. And if it's your initial imprinting, you, we know about this in dogs, your imprinting stays with you forever. Right. I can't yeah. believe how lucky I was. The imprinting that I had has led me to be very open-minded in dogs. Right. But if I always try to be cognizant of the fact that sometimes people's imprinting is closed-mindedness and it's not that they are closed-minded. It's that they were trained to be that way. Mm. And you have to kind of learn to untrain it and change their minds in a, in a different way than you might someone else. But yeah, but that's not to say that is totally in the, in the case in the States because I know like say Jerry Bradshaw's school, for example, is results-based. Mm-hmm. So it's like we want trained dogs and here's the many and various paths we can go through to get to that point. And I think the graduates of Tar Hill then end up being quite well-rounded dog trainers. Yep. That's been my experience, the people I see anyway. They, like that's a school that I respect very, very much over there. But it's very interesting because we don't have that here. It's there's Because we have the NDTF and it is nationally accredited yeah. and there's people that will run little courses for you and there's people that take, you know, shadow students and all that kind of stuff, right? But there's nobody that is like, no, this is it. There's no other way. This is the way and this is my system mm-hmm. end to end because there really isn't is, – am I missing anyone, Glenn? There isn't a big corporation that does dog training, right? We don't have that. Yes, we do. Other than NDTF? Yeah, we do. Other than – Them. Right, yeah. okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying not to mention them because I didn't want to give them any airtime, yeah, so I'm going to have to beep all that out. <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to add is one of the things I really liked about Starmark is – you can bring one dog of your own. Mm-hmm. And then when I went, we actually got two other green rescue dogs. Right. Okay. With behavior issues. And then later on, we actually swapped, went home, got new ones. So I got to work a lot of dogs. Mm-hmm. One of the dogs they gave me super fearful, wouldn't walk in the building. The other one basically looked right through you and tried to take you out. 
right. and bit all the other instructors. I had no problem with it, luckily, but yeah, had a lot from other people. So right away, I got the confidence to work with those two ends, I guess, of the leash or ends of the gamut yeah. of type of dogs. And then later on in the last four weeks, um, they're also a boarding facility and boarding train, everything. They'll go, okay, Jason, go to Kennel 101, grab this dog, teach it, sit. You got 20 minutes. Oh, by the way, he'll bite you. Okay. <laughs> and then you put that dog back, go get another one. So they really throw you through their process. That's good. So we work through every little thing, group classes, mock type of, you know, tough clients. So being that hands-on with so many different types of dogs and so many different types of situations, they even make you email the rescue back every day or every few days about the progress, just like you would have to do to a client. Perfect. So there were so many little things that were done to set you up for success, business-wise, working with clients, understanding different types of training, the history, the science, and actual practical like you were talking about. So that's why I, I still recommend and I really enjoy it. And of course, there's other great ones in uh, the States as well. Well, the application in most of these learning platforms, and I use the NDTF because I'm so familiar with it, but I think with any of these platforms, one thing that I encourage people to do, no matter who you study under, is utilize that open mind approach to everything. One of the points that we consistently emphasize with NDTF is use what works. So a lot of times we, mm-hmm. we're working with students and getting student feedback, like students will come up and they'll say, okay, so in the lecture, this is the approach path that you told us to consider. However, my dog is not responding that way. What would you recommend? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, all right, that's a good question. What have you tried? And I'll say, well, I took the dog away from the location and I went into an isolative location and now the dog is having much better progress. And I said, so what do you think is the best approach method now? That's what I love about working with the NDTF is it's not so defined in what the structure is. It's more about the development of the student. And also, as Pat and yourself pointed out before, is it's looking at it from this is a foundation. It's not your career. You know, like Uh. you are building the footing of the building and every year you're in business, you're going up one more floor. But you've also got to make sure that you're doing that right as well. It doesn't matter if you're mm-hmm. you're in the business five years or 30 years. You know, like I've known people that have been in the business 30 years and they've never really made anything of themselves because they've built a foundation. They think, oh, that's good enough. I'll just rest on yep. that and I'll just flounder around from there. Where other people have said, no, you know, like what I want to do is I am looking, you know, I'm talking about modeling here, but I'm looking to build like – a luxury skyscraper here and I'm going to keep going up until this thing can withstand what I'm trying to build on top of it, but it's going to look amazing by the time I'm finished of it. And then when Mm -hmm. I'm finished of it, I'm going to refurbish it and it's going to be really functional. And that's the definition of what amazing dog trainers should be working on is not just resting on their laurels and just saying near enough is good enough. What they should be saying is what I need to understand is that yes, there are good foundations to build on, but that doesn't mean that I can't learn anymore or or I can't evolve with science, which I guess is what you're doing, Jace. Definitely what I'm trying to do. And I took some of the things I did from my advertising career. Mm. You know, I was there for 20 years and technology went from, when I started out, Photoshop didn't have layers for all the youngins out there. Um, (laughs) Long, long time ago, you moved something in Photoshop, you put it down, you're done. Okay, so things have progressed long ways, but throughout my 20 years in that industry, I kept up with what Photoshop's doing, Mm. other programs. I realized the industry made where 
You're not sketching things anymore. You have to know the computer, especially where I was in advertising. And throughout my career, I kept up with that, kept up my speed of doing things, how to do it, kept going to workshops, kept expanding my skill set. Now, some of the kids now have even more skill sets, but same thing with dog training. I want to keep adding things to the tool belt skill set. The other thing is when I was in advertising as a creative, as an art director, creative lead, different titles all mean the same thing. I never was about making the thing that's the most beautiful. And maybe, oh, I get awards and looks great. To me, it was about, yeah, it should work. It should look nice, but it should be functional and get results. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to apply the same thing to dog training. And I, I see a lot of similarities through the creative and art directors in advertising to the dog training world. I didn't realize it. And in, in, in basically in advertising, someone's like, oh, I know Photoshop. I can design anything, especially now. In the dog training world, oh, um, I, I've read a book. I watched a video. I can train a dog. So there's a lot of similarities. And then you also got the people where, oh, you're a pet dog trainer. Oh, you don't do that. So I saw a lot of those sim- similarities from my advertising life to now. And it, it, so it sort of helped me, helped me guide me in a way to still tra- stay true to myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Interesting thing you said there about ongoing education. I was just, you know, my wife's a tattooist, right? And Oh, um, amazing. Just recently, they've just invented a wireless tattoo gun, right? And I said to her, oh, surely you're about to buy that. Like, and she's like, yeah, I'm going to get it. But it's not as simple as I just get it and get it out of the box because she had to go to workshops and you learn how to dismantle and completely service a tattoo mm-hmm. gun, right? And now this one works in a whole nother way. Mm. And so for my simple brain, like a tattoo gun's a tattoo gun. This one just doesn't have a yeah. cable. Well, okay, because it doesn't have a cable, it has to work in a completely different function. And it's a machine and like all machines, it will break at some point. And you're then going to have to learn how to take it apart, clean it, service it, put it all back together. And I think that happens in every industry. And that's the difference between the really good people and the the kind of ho-hum people is that they, they spend that time. It's the ongoing education. And does it make her yeah. any better a tattooist? Like maybe the tattoos that she's creating are the same, right? Because whether, no matter what gun she uses, it doesn't matter. For sure. But it's the efficiency and like the, the speed of outcome mm. is what comes from those like interesting interesting concepts of like, oh, here's a brand new product. Do old tattoo guns work? A hundred percent they work. They have for hundreds of years and will continue to work for hundreds of years. But maybe this one means that her hand doesn't get so sore in such a short period of time and she can work for longer. Mm. Like, you know, little shit like that. And like, yeah. it's, it, it was so interesting to me talking to her about that because when someone says, oh, there's a new type of e-collar, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I have to learn everything about that. Like, you know, and like, I'm fortunate. I usually like with the Martin system stuff, so I test a lot of the prototypes. So like I'm ahead of the curve before it comes out, mm. but I have to mm-hmm. learn that shit. I have to sit down with it and spend a few hours, like take it apart so that one day when something doesn't work, I go, okay, why is this happening? And it's so intuitive to me. Oh, I have to do that in my industry. Like I have to do that, but everybody has to do that in no matter yeah. what they're doing. That's the discussion we were having the other day about people who have reached a certain level of education yeah. and then look back and think, oh, that's just simple. Yeah. It's How simple. are you not getting this? Yeah, Getting it. It's so easy. <laughs> yeah. Mate, so tell us now you finished up, you, you got your education at Starmark, then mm-hmm. what happens? You, you've already left the advertising industry because most people kind of go from the, the hobby to the jobby to the job, but yours was kind of a baptism yeah. by fire, right? Yes and no. So my, I did have a job waiting for me when I got back 
I was apprenticing and I had a job waiting for me. One of the caveats is I had to go to school. Right. So I had that job, but it wasn't full time. So I still was freelancing doing advertising during the day. But what's really hard is I took the jobs no one wants. It was pharmaceutical advertising. Make good money, but it's not that creative. But I was able to tell them at five o'clock, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And then I can go do sessions in the evening. So I was doing advertising work during the day. In the evenings and weekends, I was doing dog training. Perfect. But what happened there was my employer at the time said, well, you should still have your own company too and help it grow and give it the time to grow. Problem is, I'm pretty good at the marketing advertising aspect of it. Um, and uh, I'll see where you go with thankfully, this. I, you know, I did okay with the dog training too, and it just blew up. Right. Okay. And I started getting calls from all over. And at that point, I was competition. Right. So I couldn't then work for that person, which was, you know, that was my mentor and who I can lean on and, and help. And that's when it was baptism by fire. It was like, okay, you can't work for me now. Go on your own. Mm-hmm. Then I didn't have that mentor. I didn't have that help. And that came later in the, in with the IACP. Right. I went to a workshop with Martin Dealey, but with the remote callers and led me to the IACP, which gave me that support that I needed to keep growing. Yeah. Right. And what, what year was that? Um, about five, six years ago, about right. five, yeah, about five, six years ago. So was that, yeah, I haven't been at it this long. So you were training by yourself, your business kind of erupted because you, you knew yep. how to make that happen from an advertising space. Then you still were continued education, ended up meeting Martin and that's, he was at a workshop. He plugged the ISAP and that's how you heard about it. Yeah. He, he was basically my second workshop. My first workshop was with Chad and, okay. and Jay was there too. Um, and the next one was at the same place at Lori's in Boston. And I wanted to learn more about remote collar. So I went to learn with uh, Martin and yes, he promoted and explained and welcomed me to coming to ICP conference. The year before that, I went to the APDT and it was fine, but it's nothing like, as you know, the ICP family. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet a lot of people that I was able to call when I had that case where I wasn't sure to help with my development, also help guide me where, where can I learn more? Yeah, perfect. Um, and in the city, there's so many dogs. And then I already had a connection with where my dog Cheddar came from, Badass Brooklyn Animal Rescue. So I was connected with them. And through social media, more rescues, which was my goal, was to help dogs stay in their homes. So I got known through the rescue community, and that really started pushing everything forward. Yeah. Let's just take a step back. You're talking about the ISAP, sure. how that gave you people to bounce ideas off of and, and sort of a network of mentors. Yeah. I think that's worth exploring. Because of the work that people see the ISAP doing, especially people who are outside the organization, we kind of think of it as like the anti-tool ban organization. Whereas yeah. what we, you know, the real mandate of the organization is in education, right? Mm. Like that's actually what mm-hmm. it's set up to do. Tell us about your experience in that. And when you first went to conference and, you know, who was it that you were like, oh, wow, this is a person I can, I can get information from. And was it as simple as you could call them or was it that you now knew where you could go to learn more? Like, was it more personal or, or broader spectrum? A bit of both. Um, so at Chad's workshop, I met Krista Melito and she's one of the people that helped push me also towards um, the workshop with Martin. Mm-hmm. So when I went to conference, Martin welcomed me like he does with open arms. You know, he remembered me and he was great with that big old smile that he has. Mm-hmm. 
Krista then introduced me to a lot of people. So immediately there was a family feeling. Mm -hmm. There weren't the egos and who are you? How long have you been doing this? Do you use a prong collar? It was like, hey, you're a trainer too. Me too. Let's let's talk. And it just became the education part of what the workshops or speakers have is great. But the side conversations between the workshops after over drinks or just during lunch mm -hmm formed those connections that gave me so many people that I can just reach out to. Mm. So it wasn't one person. It was just the collective. And, and I call you know, a conference every year, my um, dog trainer family reunion. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. It just gave me a lot different. It felt like I belonged. I guess that's how I'd put it. Yeah. When I, when I went to the APDT, nothing against it. Okay. I just felt like a little, little nothing here. And I'm just watching the show and it was more clicks. Mm -hmm. And it's bigger. I get it. When I went to the IACP, I was welcomed with open arms, introduced to more people. A funny little story for me is Michael Ellis was presenting that year. And I only see, knew him from his videos, fanboy over here. And I went uh -huh. to say hi to him. I was probably shaking like, oh, you know, funny how we have our, we get starstruck like that too. So yeah, that was yeah. one of the, my first moments there. But yeah, I had a similar just, uh, experience with him when I went to his school, you know, I'd watched every day, every yeah. day. And it, it's kind uh -huh. of surreal because for us, that's a real life celebrity walking into the room and I'm exactly. at his school and I was like, <gasps> like just kind of sat there. Like, a little bit oh, of pee came out. That's the guy. <laughs> and he's just doing his stuff. Like, because we, we get so, you know, we can be so insular in the dog world where, you know, mm -hmm. maybe he's had 10,000 people watch his videos and, and in a really narrow funnel, he's a famous person, but he's not a famous mm -hmm. person. He's just a normal guy. Like, he's mm -hmm. not like he's a celebrity, like a real, yeah, it's not like he's yeah. in And he never works movies. off it either, does he? No, never. And so mm -hmm. he's such a, like, you know, he's Humble. such a an urban hippie. He, mm -hmm. like, rocks up at his school, gets his dogs out of the car. He's just walking, like, emptying his dog out. And I'm like... I'm getting to watch Michael Ellis walk his dog to do a poo. Like this is like, like I can't believe this is happening to me. This is the most amazing experience of my life. And like I've said it before, when I went to pick Bart up from the airport, I was like, honestly, I was jittering. Like I'm waiting for him to come out of customs and I'm kind of stamping around. I did have to do a nervous poo. Like at one point I was standing there and I was like, oh God, I've got an upset stomach. And I had to run to the bathroom. And then I'm thinking, what if he comes out while I'm in the bathroom and he's wandering around and he thinks I'm a fucking idiot that didn't pick him up. You know what I mean? And to us, these are like, these are fucking heroes, man. Like yeah, these right? are people who have mm. changed the industry and completely schooled us and sent us. But isn't that wonderful? It's, oh, not, it's, amazing. It's, it's amazing to feel like that. One thing, just I want to quickly go back on on the Michael Ellis thing that I've always and forevermore been appreciative about Michael is never once has Michael strutted around with a peacock ego and put himself up, mm -hmm. even though he has reached a celebrity status within our community. Yeah. Michael has always conducted himself as an absolute consummate professional and a gentleman the whole time. He's an anomaly to me. In a, I mean, there are other people that do it, you know, but Michael has been – Absolutely, like he avoids social media. He doesn't get on there. He doesn't get involved in the arguments or anything like that. He just does his school and that's really what he focuses on. So, mm -hmm. you know, like there's a lot of people out there who really need to take a leaf from Michael's book because he has been a, a wonderful inspiration on the community, not only in his teaching methodologies, but also in the way he conducts and behaves himself in the community himself. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I appreciate 
what Michael has done for the yeah. dog community and totally. how he's conducted himself. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It, I, I just still think it's so funny to think the way we think of these people. Like you imagine, okay, so he's flying, say Michael's flying east to west coast, right, or the other way. He, he lives on the west, right? The average person listening to us, how much would you pay to sit next to him on that flight? Right. Yeah. Like you would be like, oh my God, to sit next to him on a flight, it would be amazing. I could pick his brain for five and a half hours while we fly. Well, someone is. Mm. And they're like, who's this bloke? I don't know him. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's it. I mean? Like, it's so interesting. And they've probably got a dog and they probably could like benefit from his knowledge and skill set like you would not believe. But they don't know because he's like, he's not in their sphere. Isn't it amazing? Like, I think this of people that I know personally, I think I know the most amazing person in the world to me and people walk past this person every like my cousin Dawn who's an elderly cousin who raised me when I was a, a young child helped raise me I should say she is one of the most beloved people in my life like I idolize and cherish her like she is so important to me in my life and she rescued me from the demons that I was growing up with as a child and she is the most amazing incredible loving I just can't say enough nice things about her. And there's people who walk past her on the street and never know what a wonderful person that she actually is. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, to me, she's she's part of one of my everythings. You yeah. know, I get that, that there will be people sitting on the plane next to Bart or Michael or whoever, you know, whoever we think is is an amazing person. And they're just like, Who, who's this old dude or yeah. who's this hippie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I related to... I'm sure you have too. I've had some celebrity clients that I've worked with. And it's funny. One time I was talking to this person and the, um, the boyfriend was, I guess, a famous basketball player. Mm-hmm. I think I knew who it was. But on the phone, I'm like, yeah, how you doing, dude? You know, normal. But if that was Michael Ellis on the phone, <laughs> I'd be shaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and again, I worked with some actors that are celebrities and stuff like that. And it is funny. It's it's who matters to you, celebrity or loved one. You know, it, 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 I find it interesting. That's um, right. I think was, what do they mean to you? Like what influence yeah, have they had yeah, in your that's life? Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's people like, I'm kind of the same. I'm a little bit anti-celebrity. Like I see a lot of celebrities. I'm like, oh, I could give a shit. Mm. But if I got the chance to meet <laughs> Will Farrell, that'd be a whole nother kettle of fish. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, you make me laugh harder than anybody has ever made me laugh. Right? It's like, disappointing sometimes when you meet them and they're not and that they're not person. Funny, yeah. And they're like a grumpy fucking. Yeah, yeah. And you just think, what the <laughs> hell? And yet you meet these other like I, I met Anthony Hopkins when I used to I used to do a bit of work at a TV show and I used to walk celebrities mm-hmm. in and in and out of the, the car park into the studio and then back out again. And I met Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. and man, oh man, I mean talking about nearly pooing my pants, it nearly happened because like most other people that came in there, I was pretty insular to them. I just thought, oh, I'm not really interested in them. But, I mean, I could tell you a whole story about him and I'm not going to because I'll mm-hmm. waffle on about it forever. But that was their one and only time that I absolutely got starstruck mm-hmm. and he was the kindest, most genuine, considerate person. I, I mean, nice. he not only did he not disappoint my expectations, he absolutely well and truly exceeded them. Such a wonderful okay. and kind man to actually meet. Maybe I caught him on a good day. I don't know. But he was, he was a really <laughs> cool guy. With other people, I've met him and I've just thought, oh, that was a terrible- I think it, it, especially if it's someone you really have been idolizing, yeah. it can really break your heart when you find yeah. out that they're wearing a mask. Yeah. You know? And it's one of the things I was really happy, again, it's someone in our industry, but it's people who know, like you see, you look at Larry Crone's behavior online, 
right? Mm-hmm. He's the nicest guy and he, he doesn't gets break back character to everybody and mm. like he would get so many messages and he gets back to people eventually and he, he does so much free content and he puts off this idea that he's this really nice guy. And I was, t- I was almost scared to meet him because I was like, if this guy turns out not to be mm. really this, it's going to break my <laughs> fucking heart, you know? And then when you finally do meet him and he's, he's that and more. He is what and, he is. Yeah. And it's mm. like, oh, thank God that isn't a fucking mask because that would have broken my heart. If I had like, you know, I really like you so much and haven't actually met you in person, spoken a couple of times and interacted online and watched all your content. Yep. And if you turn out to be just a marketing guru and this is a character you're playing, it's going to break my fucking heart. And when it turns out that mm-hmm. they really are like that, you're like, oh, thank God. Yeah, that's a good point. He is another one of those people like Mel- oh, totally, Michael, Michael yeah, Ellis. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he is what you see is what you get. Yeah. If he's tuning you up, he's serious oh, yeah. about it. And if he's being genuine and direct, he's being serious about yeah, it. Yeah, so many people are that. And I think that yeah. largely they're the big successes in our industry is the people mm. who really are. Like, because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't keep up the mask all the time. It falls off at some point, right? And then people yeah, see you and you. go, yeah, that's it. People yeah. see you and go, oh, fuck you, right? Like you've been, not only am I, am I heartbroken that you've been tricking me, but you're, so there's that component, but mm. it means that your content isn't real. It's not authentic, right? So it can really hurt. Whereas yeah. then when yeah. you, you get it confirmed, oh no, this is what they're really like. The chips are down and they're acting exactly the same. Jay's another one, right? Like he is what he is. There's <laughs> yeah, no absolutely. that. There's no pretending shit. That he is He's never he pretended is. from one iota. Nah. Like Jay does everything to push people away and they just love him more. That's <laughs> 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 true. That's true. Without sounding cheesy, you're very much like that too, Cohen. Like you're a much nicer person in real life like I knew of you before I met you and so forth. And then when I met you, I thought, you know, you're a really down to earth guy. Like, But the other thing on top of that, which people won't know about you is how much you go above and beyond to create communities within the organizations. Like even now that all these lockdown things have happened, like everything that you've done within the ISCP to connect people together, you know, you got the North American group together, then you got the Australian group together then you got the European group together and the Canada group together to come on and talk about, you know, their life experiences, how things are affecting mm-hmm. them. Like I know and I appreciate something about you is that you genuinely care about people and you genuinely yeah. care about improving communities and getting people together. You don't do this for accolades for yourself. Like you actually sit no. in the background and coordinate it. Because I know the type of person that you are, that you'd like doing this because you can see the greater good in it. I'm not being cheesy about it. It's just something that I got to witness firsthand. And I thought, man, I really appreciate what you're doing here. You know, I really appreciate what you're building and what you're trying to get together. And the difference that you've made since you've come on the ICP, you can see, you know, a more modern feel to it, your marketing approach. You've really updated the graphics and the presentations that you're doing there. And I can see, even being a board member and watching you do your presentation, how proud of your work you are and how much work you actually put into it. So again, this is a long-winded way of me saying I appreciate what you're doing and and how much work you put in. And I, I guess I want people to know who are listening to this podcast how hard you really do work behind the scenes to do a lot of good for a lot of other people other than yourself. Thanks. I'm trying. And, and I really appreciate everything you're saying. And I feel the same with you, with you guys. You know, the podcast now is very popular and talking about conference. I remember people saw you guys as celebrities too. And We're just dickheads with microphones. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> yeah we did. But you're not. You're, you're doing this for the greater good. This podcast is fun, but it's helping a lot of people. And you're not doing it for accolades, ego, stuff like that, money. 
you're doing it because you see the greater good. One of the benefits I wanted to do with the IACP with everything, um, I'm glad you like it and I appreciate that, was with, when I got on, there was a lot of negati- negativity going on mm-hmm. about certain people and things. So I said, how can we show what I've seen and you've seen in the IACP with its members and showcase them, the great members, the great skill sets, the great things they say. And that's what I feel the more it can do that, the more it helps them and helps us at the same time. And I, I do feel in a way that you guys do a lot of that as well with this podcast. I think something me and Glenn have always agreed on. I don't know if we've ever spoken about it on the show, but it's certainly been an ethos behind everything we do is that a strong industry benefits us all. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's yeah. like yeah. when you're competitive, because we are competitors, you go to the ICP, there's like, we're all competitors. Yeah. We're all doing the same job. Right. And there's competitors at every level. There's competitors who, you know, in the same town are running board and trains and, and are, you know, literally have the same clients. And there's people who present workshops and people have a budget. Right. So like I can only afford to attend two workshops this year. Who's it going to be? Mm-hmm. So we're all competing with each other. But I think something that has always been a cornerstone of what we try to achieve through the podcast and in everything that we do is a strong industry leads to better better success for everybody. Absolutely, hundred um, percent. And we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna face a t- tricky time of all that now when we come out, like when yeah. we come out the other side of this coronavirus thing. I think people a lot of, a lot of people are gonna be everybody's hard up for work and therefore hard up for money and we're going to be overly competitive. And I think it's important that we all do what we can within reason, right? Because it's going to be hard to convince people not to be cutthroat when you have no other option, but try and see that there is other options, right? And that we need to grow the industry back to what it was just three months ago, Mm. slow and steady. And so that everybody gets to eat. I think that, I think as well, like I think, you know, through the ISAP, through the podcast and through just good networking, we need to think of ourselves more as farmers rather than hunters, right? Like hunters get to gorge. Great analogy. Yeah. yeah hunters get yeah. to gorge every now and again. And you, you feel like you, you get that kill and it's like, it's a big party that night. Yep. Whereas yeah. farmers eat well every day, yep. right? And we never gorge, but we just eat well every day and we, we never piss anyone off and we, we're always you know, making sure that we can provide for others as well. I think that's really important. And I think that going forward as an industry, especially now, mm. we need that more than ever because we're all being kicked in the dick. Like there's not a single person in the dog industry that's killing it right now. There's not a, there's not yeah. a single person. The whole- well, Something you were, uh, on that point, something that I've noticed going on right now, um, in my small New York community, we just did, well, let me back up. Brett Bailey, you guys know him from Who's a Good Dog Industries. I'll plug him a little bit. But good guy. And we talk ever since conference. We talk all the time. I actually connected him with Korean Canine Rescue to help with getting work. That's direct competition to me. Yeah. But in turn, I can only help so many dogs. He can openly help so many dogs. Exactly. But we talk all the time, exchange ideas. And I was talking to him the other day, something I said that to something else he was doing, something he said, led to something else I was doing. And we talk with each other, bounce ideas off, and then make it our own in however we want, still helping the dogs. Yeah, I'm doing virtual dog trainer sessions right now. One of my students, let me back up. There were three videos recently that the rescue did with Blake Rodriguez, um, Brett, and me, three days in a row, three trainers. And we each referenced the other trainers' videos. Mm-hmm. We all had different topics, but I was talking to a student the other day and I'm like, listen, I know you watched his video, his live video and some of the stuff he does with engagement and games. I go, 
listen, watch his Instagram stories. Those games, they can help you too. And you're not cheating on me. Yeah. Because to me and Brett and all of us, it's about helping the dog. So he does good stuff. I don't agree with it. You know, and that's how, you know, if we're more like that, we can help more dogs, more people and stop this, you know, I guess, I don't know, the, the, the infighting sometimes that happens when you're in the same industry. Professional yeah. jealousies, York, we generally many, call it. Yeah, there's too many, there's too many dogs we can't help each other mm. with that, that we won't have enough. Let me rephrase that. There's so many dogs, especially where I live, and so many dogs being brought in from other parts of the country and world to New York. There's enough work for everybody, oh. and we all need to just you know help each other out. There's more work in, especially in pet dogs. There is more work than we'll mm-hmm. ever be there's able a to lot do. Of it. There's a point you touched on again before, Pat, was that if you do a bad job and you carry on like an idiot when you're with a client, not only do they lose faith in you, but they lose faith in the industry yeah. as well. And that's where yep. that's where the rot starts because bad news goes around the world before good news even gets out of bed. And they mm-hmm. they tell a lot of people. They just say, you know, I went to a dog trainer and it was a shit experience. Yep. And the dog suffers for that because the people have suffered for that under that. And that's where talking about ethos, as the three of us have been mentioning, I think with the work that we're trying to do, rather than fulfill our own egos and and try and build a fan base of people who throw themselves at our feet, which is not what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say to people, you know, learn from the mistakes that we've made because we've been very vulnerable and telling people some of the things that we've done, especially, you know, like I've shared things about myself, which I'm definitely not proud of, ways that I've behaved in the past before, which are definitely Mm -hmm. not the right way to do it. And I'm trying to say to younger trainers, Please learn from this. All I can do is suggest it to you. It's completely up to you now. If you go out there and behave like a complete lunatic and as that hunter analogy and just take everything for yourself, it's, you know, I often reference the Looney Tunes thing of Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny where they can share this whole pit of gold they found together. But Daffy Duck goes absolutely mad, obsessed with taking everything that he just wants to pound Mm -hmm. Bugs Bunny's head in so he can take the whole lot. Some people don't know that cartoon, but it's a good reference point because that's the way people behave and that's what creates a long-term issue. And they see it as a short-term win, but don't see it as the long-term damage that it does to everybody else. So there's an absolute ton of work out there and it's going to come back. You know, like a lot of dogs are getting rescued at the moment. A lot of dogs are getting Mm -hmm. um, put into homes. There's going to be a lot of people that need professional dog trainers and we need to make sure that when we go back into business, we're not all trying to cut each other out of the industry, not all trying to drop prices to ridiculous prices. And I'm not saying gouge people or, you know, like um, corner do any illegal practices or anything like that. But what I'm saying to people is don't get out there and try and ruin your neighbor's work. You know, don't try and get out there and badmouth somebody else. Just go out and do the best work that you possibly can do. Raise the bar, raise the ceiling and raise the standards within the industry. Definitely. Success is contagious. I had a friend that had a really small restaurant and next to it was opening like a celebrity chef's restaurant, you know? Yeah. Um, and I said to him, oh God, I bet that's going to be a, like, that's going to hit you. And he goes, nah, he says, it's awesome because they'll be booked out every night and people, like he had a good <laughs> restaurant, but no one had heard of him, you know? Yep. He goes, they'll be booked out every exactly. night and people will rock up and they'll be full and they'll come into me. Yep. He's like, the more successful they are, the more successful I'll Great be. Great attitude. Yeah, totally. And he was yep. 100% mm-hmm. right. It actually expanded his business through the roof because it just meant people were attuned to the, people were already primed to 
to go out to dinner. Yep. They couldn't get what they had in their mind. So they accepted something else and then were very, very happy with it. Right. Yep. And I think mm-hmm. the same is across dog training. Like when you look at a big company that's killing it, like, of course they can expand, but in them, but when they hit that point of before expansion, there's people that want access to them, can't get it and will yep. go somewhere else. And that's going to be you. So like you, it, it's a famine mindset that people have to stay out of. And we are in famine. We like, that's a real thing. Yeah. We are, but we mm. got to try and keep away from that famine mindset and stay in the, the abundance mindset in spite of the fact that we're not in it. Right. We need to keep trying to think that way and think mm. like we can share, it'll all come back. And my neighbor doing well is good because that means that people will see success and the idea of getting your dog trained and doing these sorts of things will lead to more people going to it. And like when people run yeah. workshops, like I want them to go to an awesome workshop, learn a shit ton and have a great time because then they're more likely to go to one of mine, right? Because mm. they're like, I yep. have had an experience that was good. I will go to another one. I'll, I'll chase that high. And I think the more that we can, you know, we're harping on about it, but I think it's really important. I think that the more we can try and keep people with that mindset, the more successful the bounce back will be for everybody. We'll we'll come back harder and faster than than we could have imagined. Hey, Jace, I want to shift gears a little bit. You touched on it before. Tell us about your work within the Korean Canine Rescue. Korean Canine Rescue, It's um, there's a few, but uh, I really like the work they do. They do a lot of work in Korea before the dogs come here, health-wise, training-wise, everything before the dogs come here. And the woman I work with there, Gina, the stuff she does is amazing how the, what they want to do to set the dog up for success. It's not easy to adopt from them. It's not cheap. And when you adopt from them, they get them from the uh, Korean meat farms, shelters, the street in Korea, bring them here. And when you adopt a dog, you actually got to work with a recommended trainer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she has a few of us that were all on the same page and she wants us to work with them. And it helps the dogs stay in the home. The other part that happens, we communicate with her. This is how it went. This is what they're struggling with. So we're all back and forth helping. I also help working with them on how they communicate with the adopters. And also I've done a few workshops to help the fosters as well before they come home. So there's so many levels that we're trying to help the dogs before they come home, after they get adopted as well. And it's really nice to have that partnership. So that's one of the rescues I have that partnership with, and it's made a big difference. And they also do a great job of promoting the trainers and the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. It's been a few years now working with them. Again, on the same thing, I brought in other trainers of the same mindset. Byron helps with them, you know, Byron, Elena. And now I I definitely have um, Brett, who's killing it as well, helping out with them as well. So all one goal, helping the dogs with the right mindset and an open mind, as you were mentioning before. Because a lot of rescues, like, can't use this tool, can't do this, shouldn't do that. A lot more open-minded so we can help the dogs the way they need to be helped. And, And that's one of the things I really love about working with them. I think that's pretty amazing that, so you're saying that before a dog goes out or part of the deal in a dog going out from the rescue is that they are assigned a trainer. Like this is the person you will be working with. Is is it that specific? No one can force them. They say, this is who we recommend you working with. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for the most part, people do. Listen, if you don't want to, and you want to just go somewhere else, then do it. But they're pretty strict. I'm not going to go over all the process and all the little nuances that part of the rescue that she she doesn't want me sharing, but yes, they basically you have to put a certain amount of money down on um, adopting the dog. A lot of it is also foster to adopt. 
So they're really strict because these dogs, a lot of them, they do get younger dogs, but a lot of them are either Shiba Jindus, Shiba Jindu mixes. So when you get that, you get a certain, you know, mm-hmm. type of dog. And a lot of them haven't had proper socialization growing up. So when they come here and then you bring them to, you know, Brooklyn, New York City, Queens, it's not like living in more open space. So that in itself is harder. And then you get these dogs from their background. So it's not the typical dog that they're getting. Can we just explore that for a moment? So I think um, like when people get a dog from the average shelter, a lot of the times the narrative in a lot of people's mind, like just the, not no one in the dog industry, but just the random person that goes into the shelter. The bait dog theory. Well, not necessarily the bait dog, but just this dog just needs love and she'll be right. Like I'll bring him into my home and it'll be right. Do you find that with their Korean meat trade dogs that people know like this dog is going to have behavioral issues and therefore are more invested in starting from the start? Because like, you know, we've all probably had it. The person I've had this client, right. Who calls me and says, I am thinking about rescuing a dog. I want to do a mm-hmm. lesson prior and I want you to come with me. And I'm like, yeah. Oh my God, you're the 1%. Like, yeah. the, and, and, and then you're like, I'm not even going to charge you because I love you already. Right. Like you're, <laughs> you're the actual, you're the, you're the most intelligent person on the planet. This is going to be the best thing ever because overwhelmingly right. people just kind of go like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go down the shelter. I'm going to get a dog. It's going to be great. And it is for two weeks and then it's not. And they've in that two weeks, you know, solidified a lot of problems. It's yep. very common. Do you find with okay. the Korean dogs that people are then go, okay, well, right from the start, I'm going to need to, you know, step off on the right foot and are therefore more likely to engage a trainer. And if they do that, are they then more likely to have success versus, you know, just finding their feet on their own? Well, good question. Yeah. Well, they set them up from the, from there that what they have to expect, the dog's going to need help, especially through what we all know is the honeymoon period Mm -hmm. until they get adjusted and maybe longer. So Sometimes people they'll go into that and want to adopt the dog because of the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. They want that story. My dog was saved from here. My dog went through this. And I tell a lot of my students that I work with is I know you want to give your dog love and give it everything. Love, 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 love. And I tell them my motto is bark train love. Love is part of it. But if you lead with your heart and not your mind, you're going to ruin the dog and make it harder for you. Mm-hmm. So they do understand that. And that's a lot of times why they get the dog. So it's a, it's a challenge to sometimes some people, yep, I get it. And in their application, they, they straight away say, I want to set firm boundaries, this, 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 and other ones, they want to live in that story. Mm. So it's, it's a catch 22, depending on who you get. But a lot of them do have that. I do get a lot of that also with dogs I get from the South, from the South here in, in the U S that come up to the bait dog mentality. Oh, it's a pit bull. It was a bait dog. Or it must have been abused because it's scared of something. So in, in a lot of different situations, they want to put that story on. And yes, you do see that more Korean canine or dogs that are just overall not what they expected from the dog they grew up. Yeah. And but the benefit I find with Korean canine is they lead them Right away, you need to hire a trainer. You need this. This is what the dog needs. They tell them what the dog has to eat, too. The dog has to be on a raw diet, okay? The dog has to have this. this. And they set them up for success. And that's the big difference I'm seeing. And mm. a lot of them are tougher. A lot of them aren't the typical. I, I never really worked with many Shibas and Jindus as much until I started working with them. And it's, it's a little different. But uh, 
they all can be helped. Jason, the lady yes. that runs this rescue, what's her name again? Gina. So is she based in North Korea or is she in South Korea? No, she's, she, she lives in Queens. South in, Korea. In so the, the Korean dog, they come from South Korea, right? They're not from North Korea. You can't get, you can't get yes. anything out of North Korea. Yes. Let alone yeah. North. And they, they have a, a shelter there that they partner with. Last I checked before all this happened, mm. I think they were building another shelter. So the dogs come from wherever they come from and they get to decompress properly in a shelter, get, work on crate training and things like that. Actually, a lot of times out there, they would also work with um, a transitional leash on the dogs there and get do some leash work there as well. Then they come here, either they go right to a foster and they work with them there, or in Queens, they work with them and start rehabbing them there as well. Recently, even they got dogs from, I worked with Julia Nelson from New Mexico, a hoarding situation. And then the dogs came, went to Queens. They did a lot of work with them before they adopted them out. So the beautiful um, Gina, Sarah, the rest of their team, they've also gone to workshops and learned so they can help with our help, the dogs, even before they go get adopted or go to fosters as well too. Mm. You said something interesting a few minutes ago, mate, when you said people are realizing this dog is not like the dog they grew up with. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's so interesting to think the way that people have changed living with dogs. I don't know about in like where you are in in New York there, because it's all, you know, it's been a built up area for forever. Concrete jungle where dreams Mm -hmm. are made of. Yeah. Mm. But, um, (laughs) you know, like even, you know, I'm only 37, right? So like even 20 years ago that I can remember very clearly or longer, maybe 30 years ago, I remember like you got a dog just from the guy down the street. You know, like it, they were, and old mate's dog. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was some dude had a dog and it got pregnant, and maybe it was on purpose, maybe it wasn't, and that's how people kind of got dogs. And our dog, when I was a kid, one of our dogs was a front door dog. She used to sleep on the front door, not <laughs> yeah. out the back, mm-hmm. and right. we lived opposite a big park. They just wandered around. Yeah, and she would do her own thing, and yeah. never did we have an issue, mm-hmm. right? And I think people who have, like, you know, maybe they haven't had time for a dog. I think that's why I'm going with this. I think you would probably experience this in New York City like crazy, right? Because you get every mm-hmm. – most people travel to New York to work and then end up staying and living. So maybe they were from somewhere else, like a lot more rural mm-hmm. community, but maybe not an actual rural mm-hmm. community, just not New yeah. York City for God's sake. And they've got that romanticized idea because dogs were easy then, right? Because we didn't ask anything of them, so they couldn't disobey and you. And you didn't have laws and you didn't have restrictions. And you didn't, I mean, governments weren't really interested in dogs and dog trainers back then because it, it just, just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't like, a thing. In no. my youth, dogs used to roam the street in cities. Yeah. And like I say, I live in the city of Sydney. Like it, it's a big city. And I'm like where I grew up in Balmain, it's like only one, like one or two suburbs out of the city. Mm. Like as a kid, we lived opposite this park and like I would walk the dog in the park as a, you know, as a five-year-old and we'd go over there and the dog would just run off on me yeah. <laughs> and come back a couple <laughs> of hours later and she'd be on the front step hanging out. And so I think someone who grew up like that and then went to college, moved to the city, has now retired or has now, oh, I've got time for a dog. Like I'm going to get a dog. And they haven't had one in their hands since they lived that life 30 years ago in a completely different area. The culture shock to them must be huge. It must be like, well, oh my God, how do, how do I live through this? Well, the thing is it's not being retired. What I get a lot of is people that grew up in suburbia, could be just like half hour, hour out of the city, a few hours, mm-hmm. any which way, anywhere from like Jersey, upstate New York, Connecticut, other parts of the country. So when they had a dog, they weren't in the city. So suburban life. 
And also, they weren't taking care of the dog. So yeah. I always ask them, have you ever had a dog? They're like, growing up, I go, that's great. just doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So but what mostly happens here is everything you said, they go to school, do what they have to do, get a job. And a lot of times then they get in a relationship mm-hmm. and then the dog's the next step. So mm-hmm. they're usually, I find a lot of times either in their mid, late 20s, 230s, where they're, okay, now we're settled enough financially enough, we can have a dog for the most part. Mm-hmm. Our trial kid. Then don't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Trial kid. And they get the dog. And then also with the way we are in these days, especially here and where a lot of my students are, we want a cause, not just the dog. We want to also fill that, that need and, and, and that saving aspect. I did it too. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of the rescues you're getting, you're getting maybe they're not a perfect dog. You're not getting that happy-go-lucky lab you got growing up. So when they get these dogs and, and they don't understand, it's different. One, you don't have the backyard. Two, when you walk outside, we talk about thresholds in dog training. Mm-hmm. When you walk outside the city, you're, there's no, that's yeah, it. You're, you're beyond at, threshold. You're at 10 out of 10. Bang. Yep. BQE, which is a highway overhead. You have large cars, trucks, buses with the hissing. Everything's right there. And another dog and a cat. And the rats that are about the size of like little dogs too. So, <laughs> you know, and so everything's there. And then you add in all the layers of stress that that brings to these dogs that in suburbia or the country, they might be fine. And then you bring them here and the, and, and it's, it's a lot to take on. So mm. that's where we try to help with training. And a lot of the training isn't always teach, sit and down, which is what we all love to do. A lot of that is how do you live with a dog? How do you be their guide? I always say be their guide, mentor, parent, or leader to the crazy world we live in. Mm. Because you have to show them around. They have to build that trust with you so you can help them. It's not not easy living to some degree. To another degree, it's actually more socialized dogs here because they get used to so much just being there all the time. Yeah. Hey, Jason, um, what, yeah. what's, the, what's the current population on Manhattan Island? I have no clue a lot. <laughs> like it's, it's millions <laughs> and millions, isn't it? Like, Yeah, I'd have to look that up. Um, and I'm, I'm not on Manhattan Island. I'm off. I'm in Brooklyn now. So right. I'm over the bridge. Right. What we call B&T, Bridge and Tunnel. Okay. Yeah, so. So I think, um, I, I think there. there's yeah. like roughly 20 million people living in that small area, isn't it? It's definitely possible. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not up, sure of the absolute yeah. statistics on it, but I know that there's just like what, what we have in the entire population of Australia, which I think is around about 30 million people. You have roughly that in that general area there, which is just incredible. You know, to think that a dog comes out of a location where it wouldn't have seen that sort of population explosion and then go into such a a heavily and densely populated area is, is quite something. Yeah, it's a tough one yeah. for the rescues. It's been my experience in the city there that you do have people who get a puppy, they end up the best socialized dogs you can imagine. Like, because if there's critical period and everything's intact, if you're in the city in critical period and then you're great. Like I've seen, you know, people who walk around with, uh, we've probably all seen that photo of the guy with his pit bull in his bag on the train. Have you seen that? Like, <laughs> yes. you're allowed to take dogs yeah. that can fit in a bag. So lucky he's jacked. <laughs> he can easily he can carry, carry around. It. He's like 45 <laughs> kilo dog, no problem. Yeah. So I think yeah. you, you do see some great dogs. Well, you get there. the good socialization. Yeah, you get good socialization and you get the bad because, you know, because there isn't 
backyards and stuff, people try to, and I did it too, right to the dog park. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the best people your dog's learning from. Mm -hmm. Or randomly meeting every dog on leash and not understanding it. Mm -hmm. And then unintentionally we create those bad associations. So there's a good socialization. And as I try to explain to my clients, socialization isn't always dog to dog. Obviously, it's just to the world. And those are the little things I feel it's important, puppies or even just little older dogs, to get that part of the socialization solid. Yeah. So they can deal with just the world they live in. Absolutely. Yeah. And positive adaptation as well. Yeah. So I looked up here. It's in two th- the census in New York. So that's people that actually claimed Manhattan was 1.6 mil oh. in, in 2018. Wait, that was 2018. Nowhere near as many as so I, I thought. To, I you thought, built it up. Yeah, I no. built well, that, it up. Wait, that, wait, that was but that was 2018. So that's point. on Manhattan Island. One one point eight million. Just the island, yeah. Right. That's well, a shit ton of people for that right tiny now, little actually. island, though. Yeah. Yeah, they just sent the census out, so that's probably going to change. And again, that doesn't include all the people that aren't filling in, or the fifteen people living in one room that aren't supposed to be in that one room. Yes, yeah, so I don't fill out the <laughs> census. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but it's so still it a long change. way off my figure that I gave before. Ah, roll just, with it. Just start yeah. telling everyone it's twenty million. <laughs> yeah. Someone will say it back more. to you, and then it's a confirmed. Then it can. Yeah. yeah just, it's done its full loop. It's science. So it, it's fact. It confirmed itself, yeah. and then you can put it on Facebook, and That's people right. will start yeah. sharing yeah, it. Could be, yeah. It could be wrong. We'll, we'll, we'll look at it after. It could be wrong. Now it's saying in 2018, NYC eight million, Bronx one million, Brooklyn two and a half million, Manhattan one point five, Queens two point two. We're closer yeah, but that's, the, that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's the conglomerate of the area, not just on the yeah. tiny little island. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about all that. like living because living is one number, but everybody being there yeah, coming from yeah, yeah. that are traveling, that are coming just for work and then going home, yeah, adds up a lot more too, the congestion, mm. sure. Like just for shits and giggles the other day, I was watching okay. Crocodile Dundee. I haven't seen it for years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> And I thought, oh, hell, I'll just watch it. And um, practicing your Australian culture. Yeah. And I was watching Hoags walking down the street in Manhattan. And I mean, oh, is so it Crocodile Dundee 2 you're talking about? No, no, no. The original yeah. Crocodile Dundee. Does when he, he go there yeah, in the first one? Yeah, he goes. Oh, he, they take him back to. Nice line. Yeah, they take him back to Manhattan to experience life in a big city. And he's walking down the street, and there's just an absolute blockade of people. Like, there's just so many people. I mean, when I go to Sydney, I get claustrophobic because there's so many people around you all the time when you're walking up the street. But this is like tenfold on what we see in, in the street of Sydney, even now. And that was way back then in the yeah. 80s. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He clears a path. They just pulls a giant knife on people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is a great scene in that movie. It's it iconic. Yeah. It's iconic. Oh, hoax. Classic, classic. Hey, mate. We won't take up too much more of your time. Tell us about your business. How can people get in contact with you? Um, give us, give yourself a big plug. Okay, big plug. So my business is Canine Cohen, the word canine, C-I-N-E, Cohen, C-O-H-E-N-E-N.com on all channels. Mm-hmm. So mostly until what happened right now, I would only work with clients in Brooklyn. Busy enough just to stay in Brooklyn. But now with this going on, I just came up with my virtual dog trainer program so I can help. And I'm gearing it towards new adopters that we've been talking about. I just brought a dog home. What can I do? How to get them situated in your life and set them up for success. So I just created a virtual dog trainer program 
um, that can help anyone anywhere. So right now I'm helping a lot of these Korean canine dogs and other rescue dogs that just got adopted virtually. So just have my computer, I can demo with my dog. And also I have a library of image, uh, videos and guides and tutorials that I work with them. So I created that to really try to help. And hopefully now people have asked me for years, can I help them? And they're not in Brooklyn. There are other parts of the country. And so now I have something to help them with that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's just virtualdogtrainer.com. Mm, uh, wow. Sorry, virtualdogtrainerprogram.com. Okay. I was going to say, holy shit, that's got to be a, um, a no, well sought after URL. <laughs> Virtual Dog Trainer. I, wow. Yeah, I got virtualdogtrainerprogram.com. Um, so it's just easy for the graphics, which I'll be putting out more of. Um, and I've done a bunch of them now. And it's a different way of training. It really is. It's um, it actually makes you a better trainer because you can't grab the leash. Mm-hmm. So it's more demonstrating and more talking through this environment. So and so far, people are liking it, um, getting a lot out of it, um, even be able just to talk to as a social aspect, talking to someone that understands and they know where they're getting the information from. Mm-hmm. So that's helped. Besides that, something I have for anybody out there, I mentioned to you guys, I have an adopter guide. That someone just adopted a dog with a lot of great free information. So I have an adopter guide that uh, can help as well, that I uh, set people up for success as well, that you can find on my website. Yeah, it's awesome. Perfect. And when things go back to business, do you do board and trains out of your facility there, or is it day training, or what is it that you do? It's just my apartment. So I mostly do private one-on-ones in the homes and outside. I do minimal board and train, but... Mostly that's what I'm doing. And then I'm hoping to maybe continue some of this virtual as well. Yeah. And if things develop the way they're supposed to, I'll be having group classes. I don't have a facility, but I might be um, working with somebody. So I'll be able to do group classes. But right now it's mostly behavioral one-on-one in-home lessons. Um, that's what I, uh, what I specialize in. Yeah. You know, what's going to be interesting when this is all over how much the industry will change. Cause when people are, mm-hmm. you know, I started doing a lot of on, I've resisted doing online stuff. I started doing it nearly two years ago, but I realized that I was really just training the people, not the dogs. And mm-hmm. people would travel uh-huh. all the way to me and buy an hour of my time. And we might train the dog for five minutes, but the rest of the time is me talking to them. And I was like, you know what? Like mm-hmm. we actually, we can do this online. We don't need to travel here. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing it with a couple of people yeah. in my local area. Cause I was just like, Hey, we can avoid the travel sure. time. And then once I realized that was like uh, workable, then we could go to the world. So it'd be interesting to see how many people even go back to, or maybe now that you've set up the infrastructure for it, if somebody exactly. wants to, because you've been forced to, there's a pressure applied to you, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to use the term, but we're all been put under the nipopo to change <laughs> change behaviors, right? <laughs> pressure's been applied. You've found a behavior that's going to turn off that pressure. And through doing that, you're going to work and get positive reinforcement in the form of money, right? Now, yeah. when things go back to normal, I'm interested to see how many people who have done exactly what you're doing, because loads of people around the world are doing that, will then become more critical and say, well, actually, like, yeah, there's some stuff it would be better to be in person. Of course, being in person has its, its benefits. Mm-hmm. It's like aggression. Yeah, loads of stuff that really can oh, only yeah. be done that way. Mm-hmm. But then I wonder if you'll have clients where you'll say, hey, you know what, we actually don't need to be face-to-face. Maybe we do this first time and but the next two or three sessions we can do online and then the, the fourth session we'll do face-to-face. And That was the mindset with this yeah. because a lot of people are coming up with these programs but they're doing it just for now. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to put the time, effort, and money to create this, why not have something that's sustainable after as an option? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see. 
Yeah, and you were saying, um, Glenn, with aggression. Yeah, it's some things maybe I have a dog that just reached out to me. Um, Krista sent me from Philly. It might have some resource guarding. Mm. Uh, we'll see how much I can sort of set up and help. But, you know, a lot of things I don't feel you can help virtually. It's going to be really hard. So I tried to gear it towards that initial, you just brought a dog home. What can I walk you through, talk you through, yeah. set you up with? You know, because you can't do everything virtually. Yeah. I don't think you can. Yeah. yeah, it is a struggle and it's something that I've definitely had struggle against myself. The last week I've spoken to three or four people who have done consults on aggression. Nice. And I can help them so far. I'm giving them some suggestions on some things because really they've got no alternative now. Like there's nothing that they can do and they really need to right. get cracking on it. So as long as we incrementally progress to a safe level with the dog, I guess what I'm trying to say is they understand what they're undertaking is serious and we have to go only as fast as they're capable and the dog is capable of mm -hmm. doing it at the time. That applies to training in general yeah. anyway. But, you know, with aggression at this point in time, and it's more so aggression towards them because they're not really out seeing other dogs at this point in time. So I am very careful in my explanation of that just so I don't, exceed their hopes and expectations on that as well but yeah it's it's a challenge yeah, and it's and it's been interesting too to modify that to see what can and can't be done and yeah. pat with the people you're helping online as well and, and glenn is it a certain type of person you can help this way yeah That's well how they learn yeah. and their dedication as well yeah well for me i'm lucky in that most of the people who reach out to me are dog trainers anyway and it's not for uh, specific mm -hmm. advice on a dog it's for like general dog training i'm teaching them systems and whatever and that kind of thing mm. of course that's not to say that's all i have there's plenty of people that are you know dog training enthusiasts or you know just mm -hmm. pet owners that have been referred to me in one way or another but usually in the case with aggression stuff or reactivity and that sort of thing. When people reach out to me and say, can I do a session on that? I say, Hey, look, you're very welcome to book a session. Um, but the truth is I can really only speak on that in general terms without having seen the dog. And the truth is if you listen to the podcast, I've, I've said everything that I'm likely to say to you, I've said on that podcast. So, you know, you can save yourself the money and just re-listen to them. Or if you want to hear it specifically from me, no problem, book a session. But you know, we really can't get too specific about that, especially like in, in, you know, with the reactivity and aggression stuff, I usually just recommend people do the box, which I can happily teach to them online yeah. uh, or they can jump on to, you know, it's there, it's all out there anyway. So, um, mm -hmm. but anyway, yeah, I think that it's been an interesting pressure that's like for all of us that has driven growth and uh, it'll be interesting to see what stays and what, what people modify. Cause I think that's happening all around the world. There'll be a lot of people in a lot of industries who are working from home currently. And then when they say, okay, come to work, they'll say, why? <laughs> because <laughs> I just effectively work from home for five months or whatever it's been. Why on earth should I go back in? Why do we implement that? Why, why should I lose two hours of my day in travel? Because yeah. I, I've so just proven. You can have a manager that walks up and down the aisle overlording me. Yeah. Well, mm. see, that's the thing. You know, this is when adaptation comes, a lot of people think like this has been interesting. I mean, we're off the topic of dogs, but people think that it's blue collar people that will lose their jobs to automation and, and work from home. It's not. It's the managers. It's the people who who don't need overlook to people, who oversee things. They're the ones that don't But they can do it remotely as well. They can be logging in and, you know. But a computer is better at doing that than a person. That, mm. That's that's something that I've done a bit of research into. So, like, it's lawyers mm -hmm. that will be replaced by AI, not bricklayers. Mm. You know what I mean? So, it's like it, 
there's not going to be a bricklaying robot because that's a thing that a person needs to do, right? There's bricklaying robots. No, but it, for the yeah, average brick, building yeah. the house, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> going to be more cost efficient to get a person in to do that. Yeah, yeah. And things have to be adapted in like manual labor type things. It, of course, there'll be production line robots. There already is. Yeah. But when automation really takes over, and this is a, a window into this, it's lawyers. Like there's AI that if you ask a legal question, can do a better job at finding you an answer than a lawyer can. It's yep. quicker and more effective. Mm. So it's those, mm-hmm. it's those, you know, sort of middle, upper middle management white collar jobs that are the, the ones that are at risk. Anyway, that's my totally off the dog topic thing. <laughs> hey, mate, thanks for some giving us a bunch of your time. Really appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. Mm. Um, people can reach out to you on those websites you just said. Hit them with us again one more time. Main website is caninecohen.com. The program is called Virtual Trainer Program. Sorry, Virtual Dog Trainer program.com. Perfect. Mm. And mate, thanks again for all the work you're putting into the ISCP. I think that I, like in the, thanks, the short man. time you've been on the board there and the role that you've been doing, it's been very noticeable yep. uh, in the social media traffic and the way that that's been going. So congratulations on that. I think you're doing a really good job. Thank Please you. keep it's it up. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. Jason, I just want to tell you, man, there's people in my life that have enhanced it for the better and you're definitely one of those people. I really appreciate Appreciate that. I do too. I, I've had some absolute stellar conversations with you. It's a fantastic thing that you and I have become friends. And Pat said it so eloquently then is that what you're doing on the board is really notable. Like people can see it. The change is definitely for the better and we really appreciate you, dude. So thank you very much yeah. for everything you're doing. Thank you guys. I appreciate you too. And I'm honored to be on this podcast and, and to call you guys friends. Thanks, Thank man. you so much. Thanks, dude. Yeah. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Glenn's got some super fun scent work content coming out that he just showed me and I'm actually really excited to see myself. Or you can jump onto Teespring and buy some cool merch from us there. Look cool during the lockdown. Jason's wearing it now. He's yeah, sucking he up to us. Yeah, He's got he his, I can see him all the way over in Brooklyn, New York, wearing his Canine Paradigm blue shirt. Thank you yeah. very much for supporting, bud. He looks amazing in it, I must say. <laughs> he does. Got his Jufro and his, <laughs> and his TCP top. <laughs> and if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to post in the discussion group on Facebook or if it's personal thing, you can shoot us an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. Glenn, music please. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I, I haven't got loaded working. I, I, yeah, I upgrade. <laughs> I don't know how that works. <laughs> yeah, usually I've got I'm a the button. one that sings it. That's my <laughs> job. Well, go, go. Do, 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 do. <laughs> That's the only bit I know. I can't hear the rest of it. <laughs>